Some of you are reliving that experience. That's all it took, wasn't it? That was just all it took right there. I remember, uh, I remember a couple of instances. One when we moved from Dallas to um, Germantown, Maryland. And, uh, Jennifer at the time was six weeks old. And, you know, we're in the big moving truck and we're bouncing down the road. And it's like, I think, the first or the second day. I don't remember what it was. And Darlene, Darlene says to me, she said, you know, it's, it's, it's time for the baby to nurse. And, and I'm like, you know what, honey, we're coming up on this town. And if we just... If we just drive through to the other side of town, then in the morning, you know, we'll just not have to worry about, you know, the rush hour traffic and it'll just take us a few minutes. And she's like, I think we should stop. It's going to be fine. That was a really, really bad mistake. You didn't think a little six week old baby could scream that loud that long. It, it was a bad, it was a really, really bad trip. I, I remember a couple of years ago, whenever I went to California, uh, it was one of those uh, days where we were going to make a really, really quick survey trip. I mean, it started off when we finished the Sunday morning service. I told Bill, I said, now, Bill, we're going to, I need to make my plane for the trip to California. So when, whenever, whenever we finish the sermon and we finish the invitation, you're going to pray because I'm going to run out and jump in the car. I had the, the driver waiting for me out front, and we got in the car. We went straight to the airport. We flew all afternoon to California. We got there late Sunday night. We jumped across the border. No, we didn't jump across the border. We got in a car, and we drove through, we drove through the border crossing and illegally went into Mexico. And we drove an hour or so to where we were going. We stayed there. I was exhausted by the time we got there. We got up early, early the next morning before daylight, drove all day long, like 12 or 14 hours. We went to the place where we were going to, to um, uh, work, and we saw the church, and we saw the places where we were going to build. We drove all over Mexico. We went to an orphanage and spent some time in the orphanage, seeing if that was the place we wanted to work. Late that night, we drove back. It was by that time dark, and we came back across the border. We went back to San Diego. We went to bed in the hotel and we got up early, early the next morning and we go to the airport and I get on the plane for the, um, so it's been like two days nonstop, three days nonstop. I get on the plane and I go back and I get my seat and I look up and I see mom coming. She's got the little baby and she's got like a two or three year old toddler with her. And I begin to pray the traveler's prayer. Some of you know which one I'm talking about, right? It kind of goes something like this. Dear God, not here, not here, not here, not here, not here, not here. I know it's bad. I love little kids. Not that one, but I love little kids. And so it was awesome because she went by. And then she stopped right behind me. And for six hours, nonstop, this little kid kicked the back of my chair. It was a great day. Sometimes we read the the Bible and we don't capture the reality of what is going on. I love that song that they just sang, which was, it was not a silent night, because it kind of takes all the the, the kind of idealized concepts and thoughts that we want to paint that birthday with. And it makes it real. And so this morning I want to do a little of that with you. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me, if you will, please, to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to continue to um, look at and talk about 
um, this concept of just a walk across the room, the concept of being available to other people who need help in their life, being available to God and saying, God, here I am, use me, send me. I want to be available uh, to you so that I can express your love to people in a way that they can completely understand and appreciate in a way that makes a difference in their life. And we're going to look at a couple of different passages of Scripture. I want you to mark that Matthew passage of Scripture. Keep your finger in there. Put your little uh, Bible marker in there. Do something uh, so that you have Matthew right there available to you. And then also I want you now to turn over to Luke chapter 1. Because in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, uh, we find the other account of uh, what is going on here at this birth. And so we're going to be flipping back and forth between the two. And I want you to have those two readily available to you. Because as we begin this concept of thinking about love, and love in a practical sense, love in a way that, that people can understand, love in a way that people can appreciate. I'm not talking about the romance. I'm not talking about the chocolates. I'm not talking about the soft lights and the gentle music. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about love in a practical sense. Love is patient and kind and those kinds of things that Corinthians tells us about. And I want to I think with you about what it means in reality for Mary and Joseph to experience love from some very unexpected sources. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, the scripture says, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled. The word means agitated. It means on edge. It means to be all up in the air. She was, she was concerned. She was overwhelmed, you might even translate that word, at, the, at his words. And she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you, will to give, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary answered, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you've said. And then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And then Mary's response is something that you should pay attention to. Because just six or seven verses earlier, she was agitated and she was upset and she was overwhelmed. But now that she spent a little time with Elizabeth and she's been well received... Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
For he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. When you begin to look at the story of the birth of Christ, one of the things that is important, I think, for us to do is actually engage with the Scripture. Pay attention to what it says and, and, and really embrace what the Scripture says and the reality of what is taking place there rather than some of those idealized concepts that we have allowed ourselves to kind of buy into. So this past week I spent some time kind of looking at the first couple of years of Mary and Joseph's life. Actually the first three or three and a half years. And I was stunned at what took place with them. It was kind of interesting whenever I asked the question, has anybody here ever taken a long trip with a small baby? Because all of a sudden, all those events and all of those stories and all of those struggles kind of come back to mind, don't they? You remember the crying and you remember the struggles and you remember the, 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 just the difficulty that that entails. So let's look at, for just a moment, the first three or four years of what took place with Mary and Joseph. And I think you'll find it a little bit interesting. So let's talk about some of the journeys that they took, okay? Because they didn't just take one journey. Over and over and over again, as you look at what happened in that first three years, what you discover is that once Gabriel showed up and said, you're with child and you're going to give birth to this child, they get on this treadmill that never goes away. So Gabriel arrives and he says to her, Mary, you are with child. You're going to give birth to the Savior of the world. Mary is all upset. She's concerned. She's trying to figure out what is going on here. The word that uh, it used to describe her means agitated or, or unsettled. And so immediately what she does is she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who is a much older woman who has endured some of the same struggles that she is now enduring. Because remember, this is a young, engaged woman in a culture in which when she shows up pregnant, there are all kinds of issues that come into bear. We're not even talking about like what it was here in the 50s or 60s or the 40s or the 50s or anything that was even closely assembled or related to our country. In that day and age, when an unmarried woman or an engaged woman showed up pregnant, She was considered, because of her engagement, already married. And if her husband was not the father of that child, she was subject to stoning. If he chose. Oh, wait. (laughs) That just puts a different perspective on it, doesn't it? Had Joseph made the choice to look at her and said, That's not mine. I'm going to hold you accountable before the priests. She wouldn't have even been allowed to testify in her own defense because the woman was allowed to speak in court. He could have required stoning. 
so Mary decides that she wants to go visit Elizabeth. Now, the hill country of Judea, which is where she goes, from Nazareth, which is where she is living, is 80 to 100 miles. Ladies, remember that first couple of weeks of pregnancy? First month or so, you want to make a 100-mile donkey trip feeling that way? That's going to be a lot of fun, isn't it, Ann? Just imagine, 180 miles. You know, best guess, you know, 10, 15 miles a day if you're feeling good and you're healthy. And, you know, that first couple of weeks of pregnancy may or may not be that way. A hundred mile trip through the hill country of Judea. Stays there three months. So now she's three or four months pregnant. And we're going to do what? Make a hundred mile trip home. Take a look. That's a long way from Nazareth down through the hill country of Judea. It could have been a little bit longer. It could have been a little bit further, depending upon where in the hill country. I just kind of picked the middle area there and made the journey. 80 miles down, 80 miles back. 100 miles down, 100 miles back. That's just a great trip that you want to make in the first three or four months of pregnancy, isn't it? But that's not where it stops. She makes the trip down. She makes the trip back to Nazareth. They get to the point where she's ready to deliver. Now she's eight, somewhere eight and a half, nine months pregnant. Where do you want to put her at? Somewhere along there. The emperor comes out and says, it's time for a census. Everyone should travel to the hometown of where they came from. So he's going to make the trip for the census to his hometown, he's going to make the trip to Bethlehem. You want to know how far it is from Bethlehem to Nazareth? About another 80-mile trip. That's a lot of fun, isn't it? Ladies, remember, 80 miles. How comfortable was it at eight or eight and a half months? You want to walk for a week? Six, eight, ten hours a day? Even better, let's ride a donkey at eight, at eight months pregnant. A lot of fun for about a week, isn't it? See, we don't even think about that part. We just read the little story that says, you know what, the Caesar, the Caesar says, you know, it's time for everybody to take a census, you know, pack up. Because what we think, we put, our, we put it in our own story, we put it in our own event, we put it in our own life cycle. We go, you know what, they're going to get in the car and they're going to drive down to, you know, 80 miles. It's going to take us a couple of hours. A couple of hours when you're eight, eight and a half months pregnant. We don't even want to make that trip, right? It's miserable. Imagine making this trip from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem. Now, you've already made the trip over to Judea once, a couple months ago, three months ago, 12 weeks is all we're talking about. 14, 16 weeks ago, you made the trip back when you're four or five months pregnant. Now you're going to make the trip all the way back down to Bethlehem. And when you arrive there, there's no place to stay. Now, one of the interesting things that you think about is David, David, um, Joseph is making a trip to his hometown, right? Where would you expect that he would stay whenever he gets there? Family. You go, you go see your family. Now, either the place was full, you know, there was no more room at the home, and so he had to go try the inn, or, I think it's possible, they didn't want him. 
Here he is. He shows up with this woman that he's now married to, but isn't really the father of this child, or it's the child from somewhere. I'm wondering if the family even wanted to let him in. So now we're nine months into it, and she's already made the trip from the first trip from her home to Judea and then back, and now she's made the trip from her home down to Bethlehem. She delivers here in Bethlehem, and as the song said, Mom's not around, Mom's not here, family's not here. She's in a place all by herself. The best that we can come up with is that the shepherds come in to celebrate. Remember that fun time when you have the new baby and everybody comes by and oohs and ahs and looks at them and tickles them and lies and said they're cute? Occasionally there is a cute one. But most often they have like little pointed wrinkled heads and stuff. That's why they give them those caps, is to cover up the little pointy head. Right? It's not for heat. It's got nothing to do with heat. Tony, it's nothing to do with heat. It's all about the little pointy head. That's what it is. It's like, oh, don't let him see that. Give that child a hat. <laughs> so she has the baby. Now, what do you do after you have the baby? Where do you go? You go home. Where's home? 80 miles away. Now, here's a place where we have to come to kind of come to grips with the, 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 the Scripture because we don't really know what happened. I'll let you make your determination, okay? When they left after the baby was born, okay? Baby's born. You figure they're not going anywhere for a week on a donkey at least, you know, maybe two weeks or whatever. They have to then go to the temple. And the Scripture tells us, that they make a trip to the temple for the dedication. That's the trip that they make when Anna and Simeon meet them. Okay? And they do that about 35 to 40 days because there's a period of time for purification and all those different kinds of things that they wait. So about 40 days into it, after 40 days after the birth, a month after the birth, they're going to make a trip to Jerusalem. And we know that they made that trip. The issue is where did they make that trip from? Give me that next map there, Ron. You see, they're down here in Bethlehem when Jesus is born. Either they left Bethlehem somewhere week two or three, take a week to go all the way up to Nazareth, and then week four or five, 40 days into it, they come all the way back down to Jerusalem, and then after the dedication, they go all the way back up to Nazareth. Or what I think happened, this is just my guess, Scripture is silent. It doesn't say. But I'm just trying to think, okay, I'm explaining to my wife, Darlene, that we're going to leave here three, you know, two weeks after the baby's born. We're going to make an 80 or 100-mile trip. And then by the time we get there, we're going to turn around and make another 65-mile trip back down. That ain't happening. I think they probably stayed there in Bethlehem for a couple of days, a couple of weeks. And then at 40 days in, they make the journey to Jerusalem. And then they go home. That, that's what I think. That seems to me to be much more reasonable. Scripture is silent. It doesn't say one way or the other. But that seems to me to be a little bit more reasonable. But when they show up in Jerusalem for the temple for the dedication, they have Anna and Simeon. 
This is all going to come together in a moment. It's not just chronology. It's not just trips. Okay? So they get there. They finally arrive in Nazareth. They're back home. They stay there. Best guess we have is maybe year, year and a half. The Magi show up. The wise men. And then Joseph gets the dream that says, Herod's going to try and kill the Christ child. That night. Put that in, put that in your terminology. That night, you've got an 18-month-old or a 2-year-old. That night, you throw everything, not in the car, <laughs> on the donkey, I guess. What are you going to carry? What have you got? And you run. You go from tucking the baby in to the next morning or that night. You grab everything and you go two to three hundred miles. You know how long it takes to make that journey? At least a month. How long it take you to walk 250 miles with an 18-month-old? That's a great journey, isn't it? When, I, when my kids were 18, I can remember when my girls were like, you know, 18 months old and the infant darling was working. And so what happened was she worked Thursdays and Saturdays, which were the two days that I took off. I took off Thursday and I took off Saturday. So I would work Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then darling Thursday would go to work and I would be at home with Jennifer and I would be at home with Stephanie. And I can remember about 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, sitting at home with the two of them thinking, actually praying, Dear God, please let her come home. Please let her come home. Please, Moms, have you ever prayed that? Let him come home. Anybody remember that prayer? Please just, oh, I can't do it anymore. They're driving me insane. It's like, how can those two little kids, I mean, I'm bigger than they are. What? It doesn't matter. Can you imagine? I mean, you've taken a trip with an 18-month-old, right? Two-year-old. That's a lot of fun. Can you imagine a month on the road when you had two hours to get ready to leave and you go down and you stay down there for maybe a year till you find out that Herod is gone and then you get to make the trip back again. So you've got these journeys that we think of. And see, we read them in the Scripture and we don't, we don't we don't set them in a reality, right? We, we translate them. We, 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 we look at them and we think this is, this is what we would do. This is how we would do it. But that wasn't their story at all. Their story was very, very different. For the first three to four years of Jesus' life, it was an unending journey. One trip after the other that never ended. I traveled six hours on the plane with the little kid kicking the back of my seat. And I was ready to cut my throat. I'm like, I am done Please let me out of here. We'll just, you know, uh, just stop the plane. I'll, you know, give me a parachute. I'll get out. You know, I just don't want to do this any longer. So now here's the question. What made it endurable for them? What made it work? Because if I put it in human terms, and I think about the difficulties, and I think about the struggles... I begin to wonder what kept them from having a complete meltdown. 
See, here's what I think happens. As you go back and you begin to unpack those stories, I think that what God did was every step along the way, He provided someone to give them some encouragement. Someone who would come along and demonstrate unconditional love to them in a way that kept them going right when they needed it the most. Have you ever had anybody do that for you? Just when you're, Josh, at just the meltdown point where, where there's just nothing left, somebody with, with a word or with an action or with a touch on the shoulder or just, just a little encouragement, they come along and it changes the entire landscape of what is taking place. See, that's why, that's why this morning I'm talking about love. And I'm not talking about love in the sense of, you know, the soft music and the red wine and the, the nice dinner. And, and the, I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about real love. Practical love. God's kind of love. That 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. Because we read it at, at weddings all the time. But I don't think we ever pause long enough to really process it and allow it to sink into our mind and into our heart. Let me, let me read that for you just a little bit. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not the guy that when the little kid kicks the seat for the umpteenth time, turns around and snarls at him. Okay? Because love is patient. And love is kind. He doesn't give the mom the dirty look. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It protects and trusts and hopes. See, I'm not talking about soft music and a nice dinner. I'm talking about real love. I'm talking about love that makes a difference in life. Love that authentically helps and supports and encourages. And you see, every step along the way, God provided someone for them. I believe when they needed it the most. So let's, let's retrace that journey just a little bit. And look at some of the people that made a difference in their life. Gabriel shows up and he says, Mary, you're with child. She was agitated. She was upset. She was overwhelmed. She's trying to process this. She's not dumb. She knows what the people in town are going to say. What she doesn't know is what Joseph is going to do. And she packs her bags and she runs literally for the hills. She goes a hundred miles away. Might as well have been around the world in that day and age. And Elizabeth looks up one day, and she sees, how old is she? We don't know, 15 to 20, somewhere around in there. And she sees her walk up, and she can tell by the look on her face that something is not good. 
And Elizabeth, you know, by the way, is one who would understand where Mary is at with people talking and people making ugly assumptions about her and her character because Elizabeth was childless and she was very old. And in that culture, not having a child was considered to be a judgment from God. The assumption from the rude, ugly people in town would kind of go something like this. Mary Ellen, what have you done that God would not bless you with a child? We know that it's something. You might as well just tell us now. And she lived with that her whole life. Until God chose to move with John the Baptist. And so if there's anyone who would understand, and I think that's why Mary went there. That and Gabriel said, Elizabeth, your cousin, is with child. And Mary's going, I don't know where to go. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know what's going on. I don't, I don't understand any of this. And God provided Elizabeth to be the listening ear. And at that moment when Mary comes in, Elizabeth has a choice to make, right? It's the same kind of choice that you and I have to make every day. How am I going to handle this person that is in trouble? How am I going to receive them? How am I going to respond to them? What am I going to say? And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice, she said, Blessed are you among women. A safe place. A safe person. You know, Elizabeth could have made a different choice, couldn't she? That, that critical moment right there, I think, was inspired by God. Because Elizabeth was the one who came along and was willing to be there for her, to express love. Elizabeth, I, I don't know what's going on. The angel showed up and he told me, I'm going to have a baby. Love always believes. always trusts same thing happened with Joseph scripture says he was a righteous man he was a devout man he was a good man but he was going to divorce her he knew this child was not his the angel came and he responded positively but even before then the scripture says that he was going to put her away quietly he could have chosen the route of Stoning. He could have chosen the route of divorce. He could have chosen the route of all different kinds of things that, that put her on a very different path. And yet he chose to love always. What does what? What does it say? Protects. He chose to protect her. It's what you do when you love someone. She's there in Bethlehem now. With Joseph nine months down the road, and she's going to have a child. There is no mom there. There's no help there. 
It looks like family has ostracized them and have put them away. We give the innkeeper a hard time, and you know, this kind of mythological kind of idea we have about what happened. But give the man credit. He at least gave him a place. No one else gave him a place. And then the shepherds show up. You know, they had nobody to celebrate with them. How sad would it be to have a baby in that environment, in those circumstances? And you got nobody, Trudy. Nobody to call. Nobody to show the little pointy-head baby to. You're just there by yourself. See, I think God sent the shepherds not just to spread the word, but I think he sent the shepherds to encourage them. They make the trip. Now, you keep this trip in mind. They've been through all the craziness with the angel. She's made the 100-mile trip down to Elizabeth. She's made the 100-mile trip back home three months later. At nine months, she's made the trip all the way down another 100 miles to Bethlehem when the baby is born. It's 40 days after that. So for the last nine months when she's had this baby, for the last ten months when she's, having this, when she's had this baby, it's been nonstop for her, and she finally shows up in Jerusalem with the baby that's a month old. They've got to be exhausted. And Anna and Simeon welcome them and celebrate with them. And, and I, this, again, is a little bit of holy imagination as you think about what's happening with the wise men. But you know what? I think one of the, the, the reasons for the wise men coming and honoring them and giving them gifts and all that stuff is, here's what I think is going on, Josh. I think part of the journey of the wise men was to give them the money that they needed to make the trip to Egypt and live there for a couple years. Because if somebody showed up and said to me tonight, pack your family and leave and go away for a couple of years, my first question I would begin to think is, how am I going to provide for them? How am I going to take care of them? Where are we going to live? What are we going to do? Where am I going to get the resources to do all that stuff? And I believe when the wise men showed up and they gave them the gift of the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh, I think God was financing in advance the trip to Egypt. He was giving them what they needed. Now, here's the point behind all of this. Every step along the way, God provided someone to help them, to encourage them, to build them up. You and I have to make those kinds of decisions every week. We have to make the choice between being available to God and being available to other people are simply living selfless, selfishly for ourselves. Because, you see, there are people all around us that are just like Mary and Joseph in that story. You go into the store, and you see this mom who's having this meltdown with this three-year-old because the three-year-old wants this present, and the mom is going, no, I'm not going to get you that present. No, I'm not going to get you that present. And the kid is just, I mean, you've seen it. You know what it looks like. And we always assume the worst. See, what, what we may not know is that she's not buying the kid the toy because she doesn't want to. She may not be buying the kid the toy because she can't afford to. 
We don't know whether or not her husband just left a month ago. And she's worried about how she's going to pay the electric bill and where she's going to get the money for the rent and how in the world she's going to put those new brakes on the car. And she doesn't have $40 to buy him a toy because that's all the money they're going to eat on that week. We don't know what's going on in their life. We don't know that the man that is so rude may have just found out that his job was done away with last week. And 30 days from now, he's done. And he's 58, and he doesn't know where he's going to find a job and how he's going to pay the bills. We don't know what's going on in his life. We don't know that that teenager that is being so rude and so disrespectful and so ugly has just found out that his mom and dad told him, there's no money for college. I know you wanted to go. But if you want to, what you need to do is go get a job and start out at Anne Arundel Community College because you're not going to go to the University of Maryland. We don't have the money to send you. We can't afford to do that. We don't know whether or not that family that seems so together on the outside, living in a nice house with a nice car, taking a nice vacation, we, we don't know that every night they sleep in separate bedrooms. And they haven't been intimate for two years. And one of them is having an affair somewhere else. See, we don't know what's going on in their heart and life. We just look at the surface and we assume everything is okay. And it's just a mom having a meltdown or it's just a teenager being rude or it's just a guy that's being a jerk. And see, at that moment, we have to decide how we're going to respond. We have to decide what kind of person we're going to be. We have to make a choice between loving people the way that God would. We have to make the choice of whether or not we're going to be Elizabeth or whether or not we're going to be Joseph or whether or not we're going to be the wise men. We have to make that kind of choice. And I have, my life is full of people like that. Whenever I first began ministry years ago over in Germantown, we had a requirement whenever I was on staff there as an associate pastor that every Tuesday night we had to go visit someone. And there were some Tuesday nights I was just literally exhausted. I didn't have anything left, and, and I had to go visit. So I would go visit Millie and Pappy Poole. <laughs> Millie and Pappy Poole were in their 70s and 80s. They ran an orchard, Butler's Orchard. Anybody ever heard of it over in Germantown? Okay, maybe not. I would go over there, and I'd visit Millie and Pappy. Because I know whenever I go in and visit them, she would always give me cake and pie. And they loved seeing me. And I would check in on them and I would sit there and I would visit and they would just love me for an hour. And about every six months or a year, I'd just go visit them. Because there was a sympathetic ear, someone who loved me and would care for me. I've had people like Simeon and Anna who were, were encouraging to me when I was discouraged and ready to quit. I've had people be the wise men in my life when I didn't have the resources to do something that I wanted to do or something that I needed to do. And they would come along and they would just provide a little something extra that would make all the difference for me. You see, every single week you have to make decisions. You have to process how you're going to respond to the people in your life. What you're going to do for them. How you're going to help them whether you're going to be 
the people in town who talk and who turn your back and who walk away or whether you're going to be the one who is there to help and to provide and to encourage. So this week, as we think about loving people, as we think about walking across the room, maybe you're going to try to take a trip and you're going to see the mom coming and you have to make the decision what kind of prayer you're going to pray. You can see from the look on her face that she's already done and she's got four or five hours to go. I was on a trip one time about three years ago and I saw from a distance the scene play out where the mom came in and she was about to have a meltdown. She had two of them, a little one and a toddler. And she sat down and like the nicest woman in the world sat beside her. And for the next two or three hours on that plane, she just loved on that little two or three year old. And everybody around her was really grateful. (laughs) But the trip for everyone could have been totally different if someone like me had sat beside them. So here's my encouragement to you this week. Take a look at the prayer. God, I know there are people hurting all around me. People quietly wondering if anyone sees them or anyone cares. I ask you to show them to me. I ask you to give me the courage to go. To look for them. I ask you to give me the words to speak and the actions to take that make your love clear to them. God, give me the courage to walk across the room to people who are hurting. With all my heart, I say to you, here I am, send me. And God, when you speak, I will be quick to hear, quick to go, and quick to demonstrate your love. You have a choice to make this week about what kind of person you're going to be when you have the opportunity to interact with others. Let's pray. God, I thank you for today. And for all those who have gone before us who have made themselves available to you and to other people. Lord, I pray that you will open our eyes and help us to see those around us who are in need. And God, help us to see not just the surface of what is taking place, but help us to see beneath that and to go beyond that. God, help us to go to a place where we know that you are there with us and that you are working through us. Lord, I pray that here in this next few moments, as we draw close into your presence, that you would speak to our heart. Help us to know that we're not alone in this next week, but that you walk with us and that you're going to provide for us all that we need so that we can love other people the way that you love us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.